we have for, you know, a hundred years in this country said that people are required to serve on juries if they get called. And the reason for that is because we want the jury pool to be fully reflective of the population as, as a whole. And I think that that applies almost precisely to voting. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I have two great guests today, Miles Rappaport and E.J. Dion. They've written a book together called 100% Democracy, making the case for full participation in our elections through universal civic voting. They feel that that change, which was done successfully in Australia and other countries, would be a leap forward, protecting us against the endless cycle of voter suppression that we're experiencing. It would quickly create a much more representative electorate to have everyone voting. Miles is a longtime progressive activist who served as Secretary of State in Connecticut and ran the progressive think tank Demos and the reform group Common Cause. EJ is an author of many books about our politics, a fellow at Brookings, a professor at Georgetown, and a columnist for the Washington Post. They seem to have really enjoyed co-authoring this book and are building an advocacy organization as well. You'll want to listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Miles and EJ of 100% Democracy. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Miles and EJ, glad to have you both here. Would you each mind introducing yourself and giving me quick biographies, starting with EJ? I'm EJ Dion. I write a column for the Washington Post. I'm a professor at Georgetown's McCourt School of Public Policy, and I'm a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a proud ally of my friend Miles Rappaport in this cause. <laughs> <laughs> Miles, what's your quick biography? Well, my current role is as the executive director of 100% Democracy, an initiative for universal voting, based on the book that I proudly did with the great E.J. Dion. And once upon a time, I was secretary of the state of Connecticut and a state legislator in Connecticut for 10 years. And that's only the beginning of the many things that you both have done, I know. I find it hard when I have very prominent people on to figure out how much to talk about, but people can look you up. Given that you both started out by appreciating each other, what annoys you the most about the other person that's talking to me right now? Like, what is really uh, not working in this partnership on this book? 
Well, actually, what I was going to say is part of what does work in the partnership, which is Miles is annoying because he is an organizer 24 hours a day. (laughs) And therefore, my email box gets full of requests saying, can you do this event? Can you do that event? Can you talk to this person or that person? But that is one of the reasons why I think this idea is going to get into circulation. That is a good kind of annoying. What's your answer to that, Miles? Well, what annoys me about EJ is that he does so many things so well that it's sort of dizzying, whether he's writing the precisely correct column about what the Republicans have done in the Senate or talking about religion or talking about historical analogies. It's amazing what uh, what he has in his head. And it's envy inducing. How did you guys come together to work on this 100 percent democracy idea? Well, Miles, why don't you start since you sort of kicked off the partnership? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I have worked on voting rights and voting expansion and democracy issues for the better part of 40 years since I served in the Connecticut legislature and all the way through being Secretary of the State and Demos and Common Cause and the Kennedy School. And what I started to think about was that over all that time, we've moved the needle, but only a little bit. But then I actually read something that EJ had written with his Brookings Institution colleague, William Galston. They wrote it in 2015 and made the case that we should adopt the Australian-style mandatory attendance at the polls. And I thought, wow, that's a really, really interesting idea. I made a decision that I was going to dig into it and see if I could figure out a way to partner up with, uh, with EJ for doing it. And how did he talk you into that, EJ? First of all, Miles just has so much energy that it's infectious. And I'm I'm not just saying this, by the way, your listeners should know. This has really been a fun partnership we've had now for several years. I've supported this for a long time myself, partly because I happen to have spent a lot of time in Australia over the years and follow their politics very closely. And I realized this system really works. And the more voter suppression spread around the United States, the more I felt that this was really the answer, because our core argument is the best way to defend voting as a right is to assert a universal duty to vote. And we can talk about that some more. So that when Miles came to me and said, I want to set up a working group of people to sort of study the idea and see how we could adapt it to the United States, I was very excited because it sort of took what had been for me a proposal and turned it into something that could lead to action. So Miles, largely Miles, with some help from me, put together a really cool group of people who included civil rights advocates, democracy activists, some really great academics, some lawyers, um, into a working group. And we met for about a year and a half, kicking the tires on this thing, trying to figure out what particular problems might we face in the U.S. and what issues would come up? How would we make a case for it? How does it work constitutionally? All those kind of questions. We invited in opponents of the idea so we could sort of hone our own position. We talked to some Australians who were very enthusiastic about their system, and we put out a report. And that report is what led to our book, thanks to the interest of Diane Wachtel at the New Press, who said she had always wanted a book on this idea, and she approached Miles, and then uh, we went to work, uh, and that's where it came from. One of the things I liked about the book is that there's a certain frankness about the current status, about 
it not having majority support at the moment. You both have been around and politics for long enough to understand sort of that there's two sides to this argument that uh, that it isn't just going to sell itself. When I think about universal voting, it's like one of those things that sure I would like to have happen, but when I don't think about it much, I'm like, it's not, it's never going to happen. Americans have some kind of allergy to this kind of change, but that's true for a million things that have started out as impossible and then become accepted. How do you think we run down that path in this case? The very first thing is that we have to actually begin the discussion. When I read EJ's piece in 2015, I thought, wow, I've been working on this for, at that time, it was 35 years, and I have never once been in a conversation about universal voting, although it has worked super successfully in Australia for 100 years and successfully in 25 other countries around the world, but there's been absolutely no discussion. So I think the reason you have such bad polling as we got, and we're very frank and very willing to put it out there as a starting point, is in large part because nobody's ever talked about this. So it's a brand new idea. So I think we got to put it on the table and then we have to go and actually sell it, argue for it, work on it at a grassroots level, see if we can get it introduced in some state legislatures as kind of the laboratories of democracy and keep going from there. I wanted, by the way, to give you a hug across this computer for talking about our frankness, because I joke all the time that this book proves that Miles and I are either two of the most candid book writers or the dumbest, because we include detailed polling showing majority opposition to this. I do want to say something about the polling, though. What our polling found is that 26% of Americans supported our idea. We kind of laid out pretty clearly what we wanted to do. And when I saw 26%, I was actually quite heartened because as Miles said, this is an idea that no one has presented systematically before or has ever made a case for before. And I thought, you know, that's not bad. The other aspect of our polling that was interesting is that 48% said they were strongly opposed to the idea. My reading of that is that half the country is at least plausibly open to persuasion uh, right now. If you take the people who are uncertain or the people who are only mildly opposed and add it to our 26%, you get about half the country. Thirdly, what the polling also showed is that a very large majority agreed with our underlying premise. 61% agreed that voting is both a right and a duty. We gave people the options and they could say, it's just a right, not a duty. But 61% said it's both a right and a duty. And interestingly, Republicans and Democrats were equally likely to say it's both a right and a duty. So we feel that, yes, it's an uphill climb, but that there are openings for argument. And the other thing, as you know, that we tried to do in the book is in the polling, we asked people what they objected to about this. And there's a kind of pure libertarian argument, which we can get to, that's harder to answer, although we note that jury duty is compulsory, but it's the way we have a fair system of justice. But there are a lot of practical objections that we think we meet in the way we put our proposal together. So we've run into a lot of people who say, this is a great idea, it'll never happen. That's way better than running into a lot of people who say, this is a bad idea, it'll never happen. <laughs> On the point of this has not really been discussed before, but there is precedent for it. I find the jury duty analogy very, very compelling. And that is 
we have for, you know, a hundred years in this country said that people are required to serve on juries if they get called. And the reason for that is because we want the jury pool to be fully reflective of the population as, as a whole. And I think that that applies almost precisely to voting, which is we want the decisions or we should want the decisions that are made about the laws under which we will live and about the people who will make those laws to be made by a fully reflective cross-section of the society. I mean, right now we're kind of mired in this conflict where some states are becoming increasingly restrictive. Some states are opening up and making it easier to vote. And it's really a blue state, red state situation for sure. And we had the former president who did his best to mess up the system. What I like about this idea is it potentially can leapfrog the current conflict and provide an opening that gets us out of this mess that we're in. But as you point out in the book, it's going to take a situation where sort of neither the left nor the right, the Democrats and the Republicans are sure that it's going to hurt their side. It probably has to go through when it might be good for Democrats, it might be good for Republicans, and they both can come together on this, because this is probably not going to go through ultimately nationally without some kind of broad consensus. No, you're right on all counts. And in fact, we make a point in the book of saying that the assumption that's out there that higher turnout automatically helps Democrats and that somehow this is just a scheme to help Democrats win elections is just not true. And we make the point out of the elections in 2020 that Republicans picked up seats in the House because their turnout went up over the 2018 turnout in a number of Trump areas of the country. This would bring in more from the Democratic side, particularly among young people who are underrepresented in the system and vote less, partly because the system makes it much harder on the young than on the old, because the young move around more. And you know, very strict voter registration systems, strict not in the sense of preventing fraud, just making it really hard, or really discriminate against them. We're bringing a lot of young people, but we're also bringing a lot of lower income white people who recently in many parts of the country have tilted toward the Republicans. And it would bring in Latinos who are more democratic, but something of a swing group. And yes, it would create a barrier against discrimination against minorities. And if there are some people on the right who want to say outright, we want discrimination against minorities. Well, they're not going to like this system because it says, in the words of one of my favorite fictional detectives, Harry Bosch, I don't know if there are any Harry Bosch, Michael Connolly fans out there, but Bosch used to say his slogan was, everybody counts or nobody counts. And I've always thought that that's a really great sort of slogan for democracy. And so you're right, this does not, we think, automatically benefit one side or the other. And Australia, again, is the proof of concept. Conservatives actually brought this in in Australia because they were worried about the power of the union movement. And they thought labor was going to win all the time because they had the best organization. And you've seen alteration in power for 100 years in Australia. And I think you see that in the United States, too. You know, I do want to say that I, I have occasionally been in a conversation with progressive Democratic friends and colleagues of mine who want to know, are we confident that this is really going to help the Democrats? And the answer is no, we're not. 
And we don't want to be. Uh, we are doing this. We are promoting this idea as a small d democratic idea that will make our democracy better. In addition to boosting turnout dramatically and making it more fully reflective of the population as a whole, it changes the incentive structure in campaigns, right? Because right now, all the Democratic and I'm sure all the Republican consultants are saying, this is not a persuasion election. This is a turnout election. We just have to turn out more of our base than theirs. And then what that leads to is enraging to engage, kind of ginning up your own base and figuring out ways to depress the turnout of the other person's base or the other party's base. And that's a fundamentally unhealthy way to run an airline, in my point of view. If you know that everybody is voting and therefore everybody is listening, you've got to speak to everybody. And I think that would be really healthy. I, I like to say that our elections are like a fancy dinner party right now with an A-list, a B-list and a C-list. You know, the A-list are fr frequent voters, regular voters who get all the attention from campaigns and consultants. A B-list of people who may be registered but don't vote that often, who get a little bits of attention, and a C-list of non-registered people who get no attention at all. And that leads to the distortions that Miles said. One other group I left out that we should note this would help in general are lower-income Americans. And so, yeah, if you want a whole political system that tilts toward elites, you probably won't like our system. But if you want a system that is fully representative of us and where the people with lower incomes, less wealth are fully represented, this is the system for you. One question I had when I was reading the book was there's a kind of a progressive angle on it. There are swings at Trump and Trumpism and the, and the people who are restricting the vote. Nobody can mistake reading it, where you folks come from. Given that it's a nonpartisan reform, did you think about writing the book in an explicitly nonpartisan way more so than you did? Not really, in, in two ways. I mean, um, way one is we are who we are, and we've been out there enough, and that, uh, you know, it would take about you know a minute on Google to figure out where we were coming from, maybe a couple of minutes. Uh, Maybe 30 and seconds, so there's no yeah. point in disguising who you are. But secondly, we're not against all Republicans. We're not against all conservatives. What we are saying is that at this moment, the Republican Party in a whole lot of states has dedicated itself to restricting access to the franchise. That's just a reality. And I long for a Republican Party that stops doing that. And you, what you said earlier is correct. We're becoming two nations when it comes to voting. Since the 2020 election, according to the Brennan Center, 25 states have actually made it easier still to vote, and 19 states have made it harder to vote. And one of the frustrations for us as we were writing the book is that, you know, from our point of view, 2020 turnout wasn't perfect, but two-thirds of Americans turning out is a big deal. And the pandemic could have been a catastrophe and instead, it was a moment of democratic breakthrough because a lot of states, states, as Miles has written a lot over the years, a lot of states have been moving toward making voting easier for people. But we took a huge leap during the pandemic. And it's frustrating to both of us that rather than build on that advance that we made, a lot of states are pulling back. And that's a shame. It's important to note, as a former secretary of the state, that in 2020, there were a number of Republican secretaries of state who did a really good job at 
rejiggering their systems so that people could vote in the middle of the pandemic, opening up hours, opening up mail-in voting, et cetera. That's important because I think election officials in general have done their job and have tried to make voting accessible. And so it's not a blanket criticism of all Republicans. If you want to say that we were critical of people who are trying to restrict the vote, I think we both would plead guilty to that. You guys refer to universal voting as universal civic duty voting. For people who this haven't thought about this, can you explain exactly what is the proposal? What change are you advocating? Yeah, that language, by the way, was intentional, not as an evasion of the words compulsory voting, which is what are usually applied, but actually to make very clear, we are not, first of all, requiring anyone to vote for anyone. It's very important that under our system, you can cast a blank ballot. We would add a none of the above option to the ballot if you wanted to protest. You could scrawl anything you wanted on your ballot. You just have to participate. So therefore, it's universal participation as a matter of civic duty. That's where the words come from. Our system would work much like the Australian system does with a few tweaks. In Australia, if you don't vote, you get a little notice from the government saying, why didn't you vote? If you provide a reasonable excuse, they don't fine you if they, you know, or you just pay the fine. The fine is $20 Australian, which last I checked was about $15 American. So it's not a heavy duty fine. This is a nudge, not a shove or a hammer. In our system, we do a couple of things. Number one, if you don't want to pay the fine, you could do an hour of community service. We were very sensitive to what has been known at times as the Ferguson problem of lower income people having fines and penalties piled on them that you have interest and they become criminalized. So we make very clear uh, the $20 is $20. It doesn't go up. It's not a criminal penalty It's a civil penalty, so there's nothing endangering your uh, life or freedom there. You know, in Australia, only about 13% of the people end up having to pay the fine. In the book, we mentioned the possibility of combining this with incentives to vote. Say, if you registered to vote, you get 50 bucks or 100 bucks off your taxes, and it would be refundable for people who don't pay income taxes. If we did do an incentive, and Congresswoman Ayanna Presley has had an interest in this idea, among other people, then the $20 would come out of the 50 you would already get just by being registered. The other thing about the Australian system, by the way, is they do a great job. Everybody's required to register, but the government does a bang-up job of making that easy. And 96% of Australians are registered to vote. And we think our system should make registration easier. And maybe Miles can talk about these. We we have a series of gateway reforms. One of the objections to the system that we ran into at our polling was, if you have a compulsory system, but somebody's making it hard for people to vote, how can you square that? And we agree with that. And so we would have a lot of reforms, including a lot of mail voting, early voting, same day registration, and that sort of thing. So we would accompany this with reforms to make it uh, as easy as possible for people to do their duty. Do you think that our political culture is too set for this change? Like Australia also made a big change with respect to guns, right? And they did it a fairly long time ago. And 
it's kind of hard to imagine a way out politically. Do you think that that we've had so long functioning in this kind of voter suppression culture of freedom around not voting, whatever the other libertarian side is arguing that that it's too rigid right now to be receptive to this? I don't think so. It will be an uphill climb, as EJ said. You know what I mean? We're not naive about the difficulty of doing this. But I think what's happening and what we're hoping that we can persuade people of all uh, ideologies, except for people who really don't want uh, poor people to vote, um, is that we're, we're now in a kind of a downward cycle where the lack of participation breeds the lack of government responsiveness. Lots of studies show that the government actions are really responsive only to the frequent voters, which are higher income, whiter, and more educated than the population as a whole. And of course, they're very responsive to the donor class. And so then people feel like, well, the system doesn't work for me. Why should I bother? And you have this cycle of, of non, non-participation, non-responsiveness of government, more disillusionment, less trust of the system, et cetera. And we're going in a, in a downward spiral. What we're hoping is that we can start to create an upward spiral, which is that if we start with a required participation, call it 90%, that's what they get in Australia year in and year out, then the, the nature of campaigns changes. People are invited into the process rather than excluded from the process. I think government would become more responsive. I actually think that having campaigns that have to speak with everybody could uh, I don't want to overpromise this, but could lower the level of toxic polarization to some degree. Our hope is that if you start with the participation, then things can uh, can gradually restore themselves. It's not going to be easy. There will be massive opposition, but I think it's an argument that is well worth making, even if it sounds like it's coming out of left field. What we all really want to do, in a way, is put out a north star that says, what is it that we really want? And what we really want is not to make a $20 fine. What we really want is to get to as close to 100% democracy as we can. And I think that that's hopefully an attractive enough notion that over time it starts to really take hold. And I, I think that example you used about guns is very instructive because the evidence is that many of the people this would bring into the system are less ideological than the people who are currently in the system. We know that people with very strong ideological views are more likely to vote. And that has led to a certain moderation in Australian politics. It was a conservative government under Prime Minister John Howard who that passed these tough laws on guns, not a labor government, not a center-left government. And so we think that, as Miles said, this would have not a complete depolarizing effect, Campaigns are going to be rough. The sources of polarization in America run deep. We understand that. But we think that this changes the incentives significantly because if you know everybody is going to vote, you have to think about everybody and that everybody includes people who are not as ideological as the folks you're accustomed to appealing to. You know, I also think that the institutional society, so to speak, would change. Just to give one example, if I were a principal of a school or a superintendent of a school system and every 18-year-old were going to be required to vote after they graduate, would that make civic education a higher priority for the system? I think it would. You know what I mean? So I think that you would have some institutional bend towards making this successful. So I think that's a good thing that would happen as well. 
It also feels like there's just something intuitive about everybody voting in a democracy that might bypass some of the smaller objections. There's something just like that appeals to kind of the, the bigger principles that people might hold collectively, I hope. We that's that's exactly what we hope. And in fact, we're very clear in the book. I don't want to discourage people from reading the book, but it's one of the only books that has a few pages on election administration in it, uh, because we want clean, honest, efficient elections that make it easy for people to vote. If you buy into what we are arguing as a whole, you're buying into an efficient, honest system where we would try over time. I mean, the, the fraud charges right now out there are totally fake, but we would build a system where it became even harder for the people making these false claims to make them. And it would be very clear that the, you know, if everybody's voting, you're not sort of bending the system toward one group or another, either trying to exclude people or stuff the ballot box. We think that is something that we could get uh, we could get broad agreement on uh, because, you know, I think in the last election, the election administrators were real heroes uh, in in the country and we should treat them that way. I, I remember when I was about 19, I was canvassing for a public interest research group in Colorado, uh, something that a lot of young people do. And I remember, I, you know, you get into the conversations at the door and I remember being incredibly startled by one of them when the subject of voting came up and the person there told me suddenly we could really fix our problems if we didn't allow the Hispanics to vote. It just like dropped my jaw. It didn't seem like it was that type of person. And it makes me realize that, you know, in reflection that there's there are a lot of people who have an objection to what they view as a less able part of the electorate, whether it's the poor people or some other race or someone who's not educated enough or someone who's not Christian enough or someone is not rich enough. Like we've always had this problem and that's out there. I know that you address that in the book, but can you talk about like, you know, why is the electorate better if it's broader? Well, uh, in the language of election administration, this is this argument is called the ignorant voter argument that we we don't want. Why should we expand the electorate and let more ignorant people come in, which both EJ and I, I think, find fundamentally undemocratic and needs to be uh, dismissed? A, there is it, uh, some evidence that in Australia and other places where they have universal voting that, you know, people who know they are going to be required to vote spend time educating themselves on the candidates and on the process to make sure they know how to do it. And I think that would be a good thing. But the other thing is, there's, I think there's very little evidence that the more ideological people who are voting in higher numbers now are necessarily more educated or more thoughtful about issues than the people who are non-voters. I think that generally speaking, we're very comfortable with the argument that we will get the best decisions from a full electorate and denying uh, certain people the rights to vote because of some perception that people have uh, is a really, really bad idea. Do you think there's anything to an argument that in a time where a lot of people who are less educated became attracted to 
uh, a wannabe authoritarian or whatever we want to call Trump, that opening up the electorate, I mean, this is not my view, but like opening up the electorate to make them make sure that all of those people are voting when when there are other people of that ilk, Trump-like creatures waiting to take advantage of them? Are we taking down a barrier to rationality in our government? Well, a couple of things. One, I think we should always remember that Trump never won a majority of the popular vote in either election. But at the end of the book, we know we're not elixir salesmen saying this one idea will solve everything. We would, both of us, would rather have a popular vote than the Electoral College and the like. And, you know, Trump lost by 7 million votes in the last election. So there's that. Secondly, we reject this ignorant voters argument on principle, as you know from reading the book, and cite some really good political science work, V.O. Key, the classic book, The Responsible Electorate, Sam Popkins' book, The Reasoning Voter, where the first sentence of E.O. Key's book, which I love, is the perverse and unorthodox argument of this little book is that voters are not fools. So we don't fear a bigger electorate. It's not clear to us that the people who would come in uh, would be of a particular kind. They'd be a very diverse kind. They would be less formally educated than the electorate as a whole because high educated people vote in large numbers. Um, but as an Australian friend, a guy was, uh, we quote in the book, uh, Kim Beasley, who was the head of the Labor Party in Australia, um, he said, you know, voters who think they are very informed are capable of believing some pretty stupid things. I'm paraphrasing him, but he said it, he said it that sharply. Um, and, uh, you know, he argues again that the kind of people who come in are more likely to be put off by crazy conspiracy theories because a lot of the people with those kinds of views are already in the electorate. But one of the things that's happening right now is there is a bit of an upsurge in other areas of election reform, particularly around ranked choice voting and around other reforms that are hoping to address the issue of polarization or uh, you know each each party catering to a primary electorate that is more extreme than maybe the median voter. The 100% democracy, the compulsory voting, voting idea doesn't really take that on directly. Do you favor reforms like that that might address other problems in who we're nominating and the incentives around kind of political behavior that are not good right now? You know, one of the points that EJ is very fond of making is that um, we don't consider ourselves kind of elixir salesmen with the idea that if you just adopt universal voting, then all of the problems of our democracy will be solved. There's a lot of other work to do uh, on, you know, call it the electoral college, call it the undemocratic nature of the U.S. Senate, call it the over influence of money in our political system, uh, et cetera. So there are lots of other reforms that we think are really important. So I do think that Australia, for instance, does actually combine ranked choice voting and universal voting. And I think that makes a lot of sense. So I'm, I've been a supporter of uh, ranked choice voting as well, because if you, if you have both, then what you do is you have everyone casting a vote and then their votes are counted the way they intend them to be counted. And I think that's a good system. So Ranked choice voting, yes. Restoration of voting rights for people with felony convictions, yes. Anyway, there are a lot of different reforms that I think are important. 
the one thing, by the way, that that I think we should stress that I like to talk about um, is that Australia holds its elections on Saturdays. Um, they which and and we don't necessarily propose a Saturday that, but we do think election day should be a holiday. But they everybody comes out. The fact that everybody knows that everybody else is going to be there creates a festive feeling around elections. We talk in the book, as you know, about democracy sausages, where at every polling place, there are people selling all kinds of food to raise money for civil society institutions. So there is a kind of linkage between the democratic process and the institutions of civil society. Of course, we insist that we would propose vegan alternatives for those who didn't want their democracy sausages. One of the cool things in Australia is you can vote anywhere you want in your state. And the whole, the food thing connected to the election is such a, a, a an expectation that there are now websites that tell you where the best food is. So if you want the best food, you go to this polling place or what the menu is at different polling places. But imagine election day as a party. That's the kind of spirit that the system has created in Australia. Again, Australia is not a perfect system. People yell at each other and sometimes can't stand each other. But they've really created a feeling around democracy that everybody pretty much buys into. And it creates a different spirit about what a, an election is, to use John Kennedy's phrase, a celebration of freedom. And that's how it's dealt with in Australia. I've had a couple guests on my show mention the disparity between Puerto Ricans voting in Puerto Rico, and then when they come over here, the turnout rates dropping because of different political culture. I don't know how true that is, but I've, I've heard it from a number of people. It's a similar thing. Like It really matters if it's a community event or not, or whether it's kind of uh, individualistic. There's actually political science on this that shows that elections associated with partying and uh, celebrations and the like tend to have higher turnouts which isn't shocking. You know, voting becomes a fun, cool thing instead of waiting six hours in a dreary line. There are better ways to do this. The Australians have many more polling places than we do also, which is something, you know, you gotta, we've got to pay attention to the nuts and bolts to make this work. You should never have six-hour lines. A bipartisan commission, President Obama appointed, had what I think would be a radical but wonderful reform which is no one should have to wait more than half an hour to vote. And most people don't, but because of the way we distribute voting machines and the way precincts are drawn and so on, there are a certain number of people who are inconvenienced terribly by voting under the system that we have. It's one reason why all the mail voting and the like was so helpful in the last election. It not only made it easier for people to vote, but it took the pressure off the polling place on election day. As a former election administrator, let me just say that one of the things that would that they do in Australia and we don't do here is they have a very very uh, strong national Australian electoral commit electoral commission, which is properly funded, is a strongly civil service, which is a national uh, 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 agency with the ability to enforce uniform rules. The United States, on the other hand, has completely balkanized elections where states are very different from each other. Even within states, there are counties that are different from each other. And I think, again, go back to the what you said about the Puerto Rican community, I think one of the things that, that happens when people get here 
is that the system is daunting and disjointed and doesn't invite people in and doesn't make people feel like they're really welcome. That's a cultural change too. So I think one of the things that we think is really important is to have a fully properly funded election system that would really, really make things work. And lastly, I'll just say that as a, uh, the only country that has partisan election officials overseeing their own and other people's elections. I mean, I say that as a former partisan election official who oversaw my own election, but it's no way to run an airline. I mean, the, the pressures on people, as we saw in 2020, when they are part of a party and they're administering the elections, you know, where the party is intensely focused, it's a real problem. So I think there's a change that we ought to make as well. Could I answer a question that you asked at the beginning that I'm not sure we fully dealt with? And I'd like Miles to talk about this too, because he's just back from the meeting of meeting of the National Conference of State Legislatures, which is how the heck are you guys ever going to bring this about in the United States? Now, good news is that because of the book, it turns out a congressman uh, from Connecticut, Miles' uh, member uh, of uh, Congress, has introduced the universal, what is it? The, um, it's the civic, it's Congressman John Larson of Connecticut has introduced the Civic Duty to Vote Act. Uh, so it has been introduced in Congress. I don't expect it to happen anytime soon, but I'd is love that to the, see. That's the seat you ran for. Is is that or? Yes, it is. Yes. It, yes. yes it he, is. The, the John Larson beat Miles in a primary. <laughs> Barely. Uh, but you were, every election Nearly, you were correct. in was was won by like three votes in your whole career, as far as I could tell. I always did better the second time <laughs> than the first. Well, Congressman time. Larson introduced this bill. He's picking up some co-sponsors, so it'll be at the federal level. We hope there's a federal conversation. But as with many reforms, we expect it's going to start in the states. Some of my favorite pages in the book are. The text of a bill introduced in Connecticut by State Senator Will Haskell, they're my favorite pages, A, because we showed here's a model bill, but B, Will was my former student at Georgetown who got elected to the State Senate at age 22. So I was very proud to put Will into the book. It's been introduced in Massachusetts. And the whole point of Miles's organization is to see if we can get this introduced in states around the country. And I have a particular dream, which is I'd love to see a Republican state and a Democratic state enacted in tandem to show it can work in very different kinds of circumstances. But Miles, why don't you talk a bit about what you ran into at the state legislators meeting? So 100% Democracy, an initiative for universal voting, that's the new organization that we've created to try to promote this idea. Uh, We had a booth at the National Conference of State Legislature's annual conference, which draws about over 4,000 people every year. Not all of them are legislators, but about 1,000 of them were legislators. And I have to say, we were expecting some hostility and some, you know, sharp criticism, but we got a lot of interest from a lot of different states, including some Republican states, where people said, this is really interesting. Let me read the book. Let me think about it. And several states where legislators emphatically said that they intend to introduce a universal voting bill in their state in the next legislative session in 2023. So for me, it was some evidence, uh, you know, a little bit anecdotal, not scientific yet, that uh, once the idea is introduced and explained and kind of Americanized, so to speak, Uh, then people are quite open to it. And we'll see. I think there's going to be some real debate. Even if it doesn't pass in some of these states, the fact that there would be a public hearing, 
and a debate and op-eds back and forth, you start to make this a, a part of the conversation. And I think that's our first step. And there are also 13 states where municipalities or counties could actually experiment with it. And you've seen that New York City has used uh, uh, ranked choice voting for ma- in mayor's races. Uh, Minneapolis, I think, uh, did the same. And, you know, so there are cities that might also want to adopt this. And again, what we want to do is have some, you know, we think 100 years in Australia is more than adequate proof of concept, but Americans might want to see how it would work here. And so we'd like to see it start and it could spread as uh, slowly ranked choice voting is spreading. I always like to point out that all of us assume that we have always voted on secret ballots. The secret ballot was an innovation. It actually also came from Australia. It was known for many years as the Australian ballot. There was a lot of resistance to the secret ballot when it was first introduced. And now we wouldn't imagine voting any other way. And, you know, what I'd love to say, and I won't be here, but 100 years from now, I'd love to say, gee, why didn't we always do it this way for universal voting? Where have you gotten as far as building an organization, Miles? I know you've run substantial organizations along the way, like Common Cause. Have you raised money? Have you hired staff? Is it just you guys? What phase is that in building an actual organization. It's very fledgling, but with a, with a sense of, uh, of strong purpose. Uh, we have raised enough money probably for the first year of operation. We're starting to hire staff. We've got materials. Uh, we have a website that's going up, not yet, but at the end of August, we'll have a good website up. So I think it's going to be a, an organization that grows organically. We don't imagine it being big and, and uh, bureaucratic. But hopefully, if we had a half a dozen people that were organizers and researchers and communication specialists, we could move some things. And uh, that's what our hope is to do. I, I want to ask you guys one question that's sort of broader than just 100% democracy, which is just my current worry, along with millions of other people, about this political moment that we're in, which just seems so terribly hazardous to the country and beyond watching the former president getting his home raided because he's probably broken so many laws, having just the whole January 6th incident, his potential for running again and maybe even winning if he's not in prison. And then people like DeSantis who have copied this model to some extent and others who, if he's not there, are going to run and and maybe win. It just feels like such a time to worry about our politics in a different way than in my lifetime or in, you know, at least back to the Civil War. Where are you guys in thinking about this right now, where we are politically? Well, I think in my mind, there are sort of two um, major tasks that are ahead of us. One is that there is clearly, and you've put your finger on it, a, a faction, I would call it, that is committed to maintaining a uh, kind of minority rule in this country by making it harder for people to vote, make it easier for elections to be overturned. And that has to be fought. That has to be fought plain and simple in the courts, at the ballot box, with demonstrations in the streets. That can't be allowed to succeed. And that's a defensive fight that that has to go on. And I think it is going on. Uh, And I think you're seeing it. And we don't know yet how it will play out. EJ is probably a better prognosticator than I am. 
on this. But the second part is, I keep thinking that song, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. I mean, my analogy is, is that we're, we're, we're walking down a road and there's this giant sinkhole in front of us that could actually swallow us up. But on the other hand, there is a, a road on the other side. And if we can get around and over the sinkhole, we want to have a North Star. We want to say, what is it that we would like our democracy to be? What is it that we hope our democracy can be? And that's the lane that uh, EJ and I are hoping to occupy with the idea of universal voting. We're not naive. We are a little naive, but we're not that naive to think that we are not in danger. We are. We're in that fight as well. But we also want to hold out the North Star of a genuinely full celebratory participatory democracy and not lose hold of that. What's your response to that same question? I absolutely share your apprehensions. And, you know, I found myself over the last several years reading a lot into the 1850s period in American history leading up to the Civil War. And there's an awful lot about this period that makes you, that, that rhymes with that period. Even some of the regional divisions overlap, the race, obviously, with slavery and race, there's an overlap. And the absolute hatred and misunderstanding across certain political lines that exists in the, in the country. My general theory is we've got to get through the next decade. I have quite a lot of confidence in the next generation coming up that some of the hardest line, uh, particularly on the right, is taken among people my age, among you know, baby boomers, among older people. And I, I get why the next generation's up have a certain hostility, you may have noticed, to uh, baby boomers. And I think when that generation takes over in the majority, I think the some of these divisions will recede, not entirely, but significantly. The only problem is I want to be around to see it. So there's a contradiction in my analysis. I do think that this is a very difficult time. One of the reasons Miles and I have enjoyed making the case for our idea is because while in certain ways, it obviously meshes with the conflict, because if you don't want black people to vote or don't like your example, don't want Latinos to vote or something, you probably won't like our idea. But there are an awful lot of people, and, and we were struck again in our polling, that there are an awful lot of people who are conservative, who are Republican, who still have a strong civic sense and don't really like the way the system is working. And so we again, without disguising who we are and where we come from in our politics, we really are trying to present this as a reform that is not for our side, but for the democracy itself. And we want people to think more about democracy and what it means and what it implies. And our hope is the more we think about that, the better the chances to get around the sinkhole that Miles accurately described in the middle of the road. Are there prominent conservatives, Republicans who are on board with this idea that you could point to, the 100% democracy idea? Well, I was a member of a commission that was done by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which was a very bipartisan commission and had some strong conservative thinkers. They weren't from the MAGA faction, so to speak, but they were definitely conservative. And the unanimous report of that commission included universal voting as a recommendation. So there were several, Pete Peterson, Yuval Levin, who are on there. Uh, I think there are some people in the Republican Party now that uh, are interested in this in part because they think it is a way of depolarizing and moving the, the, the parties a little bit back 
closer together. So, yeah, we certainly plan to outreach to conservatives, both in the political realm and in the intellectual realm, to see if we can broaden out the base. I I had a great experience uh, about a month ago where my colleague at The Washington Post, Henry Olson, who's a conservative columnist, and I were presenting to a group together, you know, show two perspectives on the election coming up. And I mentioned our book and our idea for universal voting because a couple of the people in the group were Australian who are very pleased that we were lifting up Australia. And I discovered my friend Henry Olson, the conservative, is also for the system. I have discovered, I know, as as Miles said, and I'm trying to get some of them to come out publicly, I know some conservative political consultants and the like who think actually this would improve the system. But at the moment, there aren't a huge number of public figures on either side of the spectrum who'd endorse this. And if they looked at our own polling, they'd probably say, let's wait till after this election uh, before we get into this. God bless John Larson for jumping out front. I think there is a certain kind of civic conservative who could buy into this idea, and I hope we see more of it. Do you think there's any way to avoid sort of flaring up a real organized opposition to this if you start making progress? No, I think there'll be big organized opposition. I, I don't know, maybe Miles is more optimistic, but I I just assume there will be a lot of opposition, that it, it's not going to happen easily, but you have the argument and you see what happens. Miles, you have a more optimistic view than I just expressed. I, I, I'm fairly upbeat. I sometimes describe myself as a glass one-tenth full person. Miles is a glass one-fiftieth uh, full person. So, <laughs> I expect it to be a real you know, sort of conflict if we start to get real traction. In some ways, that'll be a good conflict to have because it's a brand new idea. And new ideas don't get traction that easily. But I also think that there will be places, probably blue places at first, where, you know, there are either municipalities or states that are willing to give this a try. And, you know, one of the Nick Stephanopoulos, who's a Harvard law professor, has a theory that the way that this will actually gain traction, the idea of universal voting, is that some cities, particularly blue cities and purple or red states, adopt it. And all of a sudden, they're getting 90% turnout in Milwaukee. What about the rest of Wisconsin? Um, So maybe you have other places that say, we better. I read that part, uh, that discussion in the book, and and it did say, well, maybe the state will just pass something to invalidate that in the cities. And that seemed like the most likely political consequence. I was wondering if it's like bad strategy to provoke Republican legislatures to get out and make a stand against it early on. I don't know. Like it's, it's hard, impossible to game these things. We kicked around exactly what you said. And, and yeah. I think that is one perfectly plausible possibility. On the other hand, the other plausible possibility is that other counties around the state just say, we want our people represented too, and they go for it. But yeah, it, 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 what you said is perfectly possible. And our initial desire is to get this enacted statewide and hopefully with at least some Republican support. I'll just add that I think one of the most debilitating parts of our current political culture is the idea of, you know, don't don't even mention a progressive idea because you'll, you know, you'll poke the bear of a, of a kind of a right wing reaction. And but what's happening now is this 
goal line scrimmage scrum where is are we having five days of early voting or 10 days of early voting and it's not very inspiring so i think having a, an idea out there that's inspiring even at the risk of some conserv of of of, of, you, of you can't be afraid that lindsey graham is going to say something mean about you or something like that i guess correct yeah correct is there a question that i failed to ask you guys that i should have not that i can think of i really enjoyed this conversation and your spirit uh, Miles, do you have a... You know, I'd like to say one thing that maybe you can fit in there, maybe you can't, which is I, I think that, um, you know, a kind of a little, a quick listing of what we think are the main advantages with universal voting is probably a good thing to, you know, see if we can get in. What What are the main advantages of universal voting? Well, I think the first two are immediate, which is that if universal voting is adopted in a state or or nationwide you will get a, a, an immediate jump in turnout from the 50% in midterms that we have now to upwards of 90% or around 90%. That's been the Australian experience. And secondly, that that turnout will be fully reflective of the population as a whole. And I think both of those are, are good things. But I would say two other things. One is that the nature of the way in which elections are run would change. I think institutions would bend themselves towards making it more possible for people to vote, enacting reforms that make universal voting a workable solution. And fourthly, that I think the nature of campaigns and political parties would change. And that is, it would be a disincentive for campaigns to just turn out their own narrow base. Uh, I think campaigns would have to appeal to everybody. And I think that would be a much healthier way of doing politics in the country. You're going to definitely run into the very powerful GOTV consultant lobby that doesn't want to go out of business, though. Yes, but on the other hand, <laughs> think how much money the candidates and the parties will save if they don't have to do GOTV. They can apply that to actually talking to real people out there. But you also make an excellent point because to the extent that you shift money away from GOTV, to the extent that you shift money away from efforts to persuade the other side not to vote, you're still going to need organizers making the case. It could save money in campaigns, and we think it would, but some of those resources would be shifted into persuasion and argument. It would be, if you will, a less technocratic approach to campaigning, and it would be much more about how do you persuade a person to join you, to agree with you, to support your ideas. And so it shifts us in that direction too. It seems to me like it's a little bit analogous to when you had finally female suffrage, you doubled the electorate, right? And people didn't know whether women would vote much differently and they do vote some somewhat differently. That's kind of like a a precursor to opening up the electorate further this way. That's a great analogy. And, and in fact, what you found over the years is women as a group were somewhat more moderately conservative than men for a while. And now women as a group, again, there are plenty of women who don't go with the group, but as a group are more democratic. But the, on the whole, um, I don't think the elections in the 1920s were radically changed Although I do think, as Mike Kazin, the great historian, has written in his recent history of the Democratic Party, that the you know some of the conversations in politics changed 
when women joined the electorate. Uh, the, the conversation was broadened. And I think this would have a similar effect in broadening the conversation. But I think that metaphor is a really interesting one to explore. Yeah. And there's even a broader progression or tradition that I think this is part of, which is, you know, from the beginning of the country, voting was restricted to white male property owners. And gradually the property restrictions were, were lifted and gradually African-Americans got the right to vote. And then it was ripped away in the post reconstruction period. And then women got the vote. And then, you know, back in 1972, 18 year olds got the right to vote. So, you know, I think our history has been seeking to expand the franchise and make sure that everybody can vote push, you know, coupled with pushing back from people who don't want it to go that way. So we feel like we're maybe the next wave of that uh, conversation. And I, I don't want to keep you too long, but it just occurred to me that the chapter that you have about the legal objections and the constitutional objections and how the way you've structured it is, it was a very interesting chapter, at least for anyone who wants to read the book. And if you guys want to comment on that, certainly. Happy yeah, I, I, we appreciate that. We had a great group of lawyers working with us. Allegra Chapman, if I can say, there were a whole bunch of people we, whom we mentioned in the book, but Allegra is now working directly with Miles on this initiative. And they really explored very closely, is this idea constitutional, which is an, a question we get a lot. And what is quite clear from the case law is that if you required people to cast a vote for a candidate, in other words, if the requirement were not only that you have to participate, but you have to put X next to a name, whether you want to or not, that could be knocked down as compelled speech. But what is thoroughly constitutional is to require certain forms of behavior by citizens, for example, to go back to it, to put yourself in a jury pool. That is why we go out of our way to say you don't have to vote for a candidate and why we add the none of the above box. Now, I would be the last person to predict what this current majority on the Supreme Court would do with our idea. But if you go with the precedents, I think there's a very persuasive case that this idea is thoroughly constitutional. It seemed like it to me. Well, it's really an honor to talk to both of you. Is there anything else you want to say? I think it would be important for us to say that uh, we hope that people will uh, buy and read the book. We are grateful to the New Press, which is a wonderful nonpartisan, nonprofit uh, publisher, for giving us the opportunity to do this. And so it's been a labor of love to work with EJ on it. It's a big idea that we'll try to make into a real part of the public conversation over the years ahead. And right back to Miles on that, on the fun of working with him. And it's really great of you to have us on. And this has been a really engaging conversation for both of us. Thanks so much. Thank you both. That was EJ Dion and Miles Rappaport. They're at thenewpress.com slash books slash 100-democracy. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.